would take your Bibles and turn with me to the, to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> I've of course, course been very reflective all week. Doesn't take much to make me tear up at this moment, so if I do, please forgive me. I stepped into this pulpit for the first time over 18 years ago, and my best calculations would say that I've stepped here over 900 times in my tenure as pastor here. None as precious as the first, none as hard as the last, but between the two, I have learned incredible things. I'll start with some really lighthearted ones, otherwise I'll cry. You understand, when I stepped into this pulpit for the very first time, Jenny and I had not been married very long. We got married in June of 98, became your pastor in January of 99, January 3rd of 1999, the first time I stepped here as your pastor. I'd already preached at least two times, memory doesn't serve well, to say if it was more than that before I became your pastor. But during that time, we learned to eat Eastern North Carolina barbecue for the first time and shop for good sales. It seemed like every Friday night we were with some folks in the church or Saturday night and we would go to barbecue and then to a mall or Belk and I learned how to find deals on shirts and things like that with some of our older members. I learned very quickly after coming to Poplar Spring how to pull a well. I would have never even known what that phrase meant, but uh, we pulled the well at the parsonage, and Glenn Strickland helped us do that. I learned more than I'll ever be able to use or remember about farming, especially tobacco. I learned how to duck hunt here. I'd never duck hunted before, and Guy Martin taught me that. Speaking of that, he also taught me how to do trim work. Uh, Guy Martin and I trimmed, did all the trim carpentry in the fellowship hall. Then somehow I ended up trimming his house with him. I don't know if the fellowship hall was just training for that or what, but I learned a bit about building programs as we've done two of them. I learned to be a husband by watching the men of this church. Jenny and I had only been married about six weeks the first time we came in, sat right back there. We learned to be good neighbors. Lenny Horton was one of the best neighbors I have ever had, and she would cook for us and call us over and bring us food. She sat right on the second row of the church every Sunday morning. Tony and Karen Horton have been some of the best friends we've had, and I've told Tony this privately. I'll tell you publicly, I don't have a better friend in the world than Tony Horton. It's because God let us be neighbors. I learned how to grieve with hope. Just after I came to Poplar Spring, Addie Hales and Violet Martin were sick and both died very quickly. And their families, they grieved those deaths. I really learned how to grieve, though, when Miss Lenny died. Morris Mullen, a good neighbor and then my friend and fellow leader in the church. Funerals and grief were helping others grieve at first. And then as you stay as a pastor, you hurt. 
I learned how to be a father. We had been here five years when the Lord blessed us with Caleb, followed by three precious girls in church. You have loved them well, even as was testified by them last night at our dinner table. I learned to pray for the lost with you and for some of you that are here. I learned to lead a mission team. I don't know if anybody's here that went, but we went to Minersville, Pennsylvania, Sabinas, Mexico, or even now as our partnership with Lamino Town in Uganda. We've learned much as we've reached out to the nations with the gospel. I learned to be unified even when we disagree. Junior Alford, sitting right here on the second row, would always walk out of a meeting and say, men, we can disagree in here, but when we go to our church, we're unified even if we're not together completely. We are going to be together when we go out. And he would say, I can disagree with you here, but if we vote and you decide to do it, when we go out there, I'm all with you. I learned to be able to disagree, but to be unified with our leadership. I learned that my heart has way more capacity for love than my schedule has to express it. You'll get that one a little later, maybe. I learned to prize every day. Indeed, Each moment that you and I are given is a gift by our God, and I have learned a little bit, I would say, about trying to make the best use of time, because whether it's conducting the funeral of a precious little one who only lived minutes upon this earth, or the funeral of Nettie Ann Murphy, who lived well into her 90s and served this church faithfully for many, many years playing the organ, this life is short. It is but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. I learned to celebrate with you. Victories like answered prayers, new jobs, new homes, a healed relationship or new friends, we celebrated together, and I praise the Lord for that. I've learned that the greatest causes of joy and celebration in our lives are primarily birth and rebirth, and we have celebrated both in this church together. I had the opportunity as I was cleaning out my desk because Matt said I had to be out by yesterday. Just kidding. He didn't say that. To go back and look at our baby dedications, you'll celebrate baby dedication in two weeks. The first one that we did here was J.J. Leslie's little girl and Tony and Karen's little boy. I learned to be dependent on the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to form and transform us into the image of Christ, which is His purpose for all of His children. So when I stepped into this pulpit for the very first time 18 years ago, I had prayed and sought counsel about where to begin as a 24-year-old pastor beginning at a church that I'd just been introduced to And I wanted to make sure at that moment that we got the gospel right because I didn't know a whole lot at 24, and I've learned, I hope, a lot. But I knew that if you and I were going to make a difference in the world, we must get the gospel right. And so we began on January 3rd, 1999, a series in the book of Romans because Paul gives us the gospel in Romans 1 through 8. A year and a half later, we moved out of Romans 1 through 8. Eight chapters. I preach a lot quicker than that now. We did eight chapters in a year and a half. So this morning, what I want to do 18 years later, and what I know is that you and I must get the gospel right. And so as I prayed weeks, months even ago, Matt and I praying, 
Lord, what would you have us to do? I wanted to bring us here. It's where I started. It's where I'll end. Hopefully not the last time I'll preach here, Matt, but it's at least where I'll end as your pastor. I want us to celebrate the gospel together. Romans chapter 1. Would you begin reading with me in verse 8? The Apostle Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we pray in these moments that you would excite our hearts yet again by this incredibly good news that we can have forgiveness. Righteousness can be ours in Christ, and we can live not in fear, not in defeat, but in delight in our Savior and in assurance of His victory on our behalf and in assurance of our eternal life. Not, Lord, because we have righteousness, but because You do. And you have exchanged your righteousness for our wickedness. Eternal life for the wrath of God. Help us, Lord, in these moments. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Romans is Paul's letter to a church that he longs to visit. I believe it's the only letter we have in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul to a church which he did not found. He was a church planter. He spent his life going around sharing the gospel with the Gentiles and planting churches. But he had not planted the church in Rome. But you heard, even as we read a moment ago, Paul had a real desire to go to this church. And there was a reason for his desire. But he had already heard much about the church. And so before he comes to the church, and that, by the way, is his plan, while he's writing the letter, he is traveling to Jerusalem to deliver an offering to the church at Jerusalem. And after he leaves Jerusalem, his, his full plan is to go to Spain through Rome. What we know from the New Testament is that Paul makes it to Rome at some point, but he makes it to Rome not as a missionary on a journey to Spain. He makes it to Rome as a prisoner in chains. 
And so here, a letter that Paul is writing in which he wants to get the gospel right. Like all of his letters, the book of Romans is theologically rich and practically minded. The first part of this book is very, very heavy with theological truths. Some would call it a sustained presentation of the gospel. Many of us get most of what we believe about the gospel from the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Indeed, some of the most promising texts of scripture that you can take with you daily in your life are found right here in Romans chapters 1 through 8. But also some of the most depressing chapters and words ever written about those who do not know Christ are written right here. For example, we have just shown that the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says the wrath of God has been revealed. The reason that you and I need the righteousness of God revealed is because there is wrath revealed for those who are not in Christ or those who are not righteous. And so what we know in our life and in our world is that you and I are not righteous. And if we are going to have a relationship with the Father, we must be righteous. And I don't know about you, but I know that I have no hope of that. I have hope in Christ, but not in myself, not in my own power. And so Romans chapter 1 begins to give us an understanding of the gospel. So from chapter 1 verse 8. 18, excuse me, through chapter 3, verse 25, Paul begins and gives us an understanding of why we need the gospel. This morning, I'm not going to deal with those verses because I believe that I'm in this body of believers who has no question that we need the gospel, that we are not righteous. If there's anything unrighteous in your life, there's not enough that you can do to undo that unrighteousness and that you need a righteousness that is not your own. And God has revealed it to us in Christ. So as in all of his letters, Paul begins Romans with the gospel. And he begins it with something that I want to call this morning as we walk through these verses very briefly together, gospel, gospel faith. The gospel is simply this, if you have not heard, it is good news. It's a word that just means good news. It was news that was proclaimed by one that would go, a herald that would go out and give a message on behalf of the king. And so the good news is this, that Paul is sharing with us. It is simply that this is a work of God who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect sinless life upon this world. He took on flesh. He laid his life down, suffering on the cross, an excruciatingly painful human death, but also bearing all the wrath of God poured out against sin so that in both his body and his spirit or his soul, Jesus suffered the entire brunt of the wrath of God for you and I And then he rose from the grave, defeating death, hell, and the grave, which is the wrath of God found in death. When you eat of the fruit, he says to Adam and Eve, you shall surely die and death entered in. But not only physical death, but spiritual eternal death. Jesus took that for you. Hell, the wrath of God poured out the torment for sin. The absence of everything that is godly, Jesus took that for you, and then he overcame it 
on the third day, proclaiming then to you and to me that we can share in his victory over sin through what Paul calls in this text the great exchange, to exchange your wickedness, your life, for his righteousness, his life. His life, death, burial, and resurrection, friends, were for you and me. That is the good news today. And so Paul is speaking to us in Romans chapter 1 about gospel faith. So I told you I wanted to speak about gospel faith. Well, you got the gospel, Pastor. What do you mean by faith? Here it is. How can you and I apply the gospel to ourselves? How do we get in on the offer? How do we get in on the great exchange? And the Bible teaches us it is by faith. And Paul is writing chapter 1, verses 8 through 17 about that very topic. Our faith. Our trust. So here's what he says. If you will believe... It is as simple as that, friends. There is nothing else in the text of Scripture that would require you to do anything else except trust Jesus for salvation. Friend, today, if you are in this place and you have tried to trust your righteousness, your goodness, your attending church, your being a good husband or a good wife, your being a good neighbor or a good person, none of that will make the gospel applicable to your life. It might make you a good moral person. It might make you respected by others that you know. It might make everybody look at you and say, oh, what a great person they are, but it will not bring the gospel to bear on your life. There is only one thing that will bring the gospel to bear on our lives and the bible calls that faith it is trust in jesus christ to believe that he was who he said he was to believe that he did what he said he was going to do to believe that he is alive today he rose from the dead defeating the enemy of our own flesh sin hell death and the grave to take the wrath of God for you. He now says, I invite you into eternal life by faith, by trust. Believe. Believe in Jesus. And so this morning, I want to walk through this text and talk to you about what Paul says about gospel faith. Now, let me be clear with you this morning. If you don't know the Lord, If you have come into this place this morning and you have never, by faith, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I want to right now invite you to do that. Would you give him every part of your life? But Paul is opening his letter, friend, not with an invitation to the gospel, but with the implications of the gospel for those who are believers. And that's why I bring it here for us as a church. So that you and I would know among the thousands of things you and I could focus on, among the hundreds and thousands of things that this church may do and has done in its almost 230 years of history, there is nothing that we should ever do that is not centered around and driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not exist for any other reason. We are the people of God and we must wrap our minds around the mission of God because his news has been declared to us and now we are his ambassadors to declare that gospel to the world. That includes our neighbors and the nations. 
And friends, it will be evidenced in your life that the gospel has redeemed you and changed you when you and I, to the extent that you and I submit ourselves to the mission of the one who redeemed us. And so this morning, if you don't know the Lord, I invite you to come to know him. He has invited you to, and it's a free gift. But I'm speaking to you this morning, church, as those who are part of this church who have been redeemed. And I want us to look at the implications Paul says about gospel faith in the text before us. And I believe there are four of them. So let me walk through them very briefly with you. And then I'll just call us to prayer. Number one, found in verse 8. Gospel faith leads to thankfulness. Gospel faith leads leads to thankfulness. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, watch this, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Friends, it's a great thing for the gospel to be proclaimed everywhere. But do you know this morning there are people in Lamino Town, Africa, who are praying for you. There's a pastor in San Antonio, Texas, who used to be in Sabinas, Mexico, who is praying for Poplar Spring, and he and his church knows about the ministry of this church because you prayed, gave, and sent people. And there are people in Minersville, Pennsylvania that know the Lord today because of the work of Poplar Spring Baptist Church. There are people all over the world that you and I might be familiar with and might not be familiar with because of the work of your faith. And I want you to know Paul is writing to the Romans and he's saying to them, because of your faith, I thank God. And so this morning, as you look at this church and as you look at sister churches around this area and around the world, Gospel faith gives us eyes to see in the darkness of this world, God is at work. And it also encourages us, by the way, that gratitude to God for what he's doing encourages us to keep doing the work and be faithful to our neighbors and to the nations. And so Paul says, I just want to get down before the Lord and thank him for all of you. And that's my heart this morning. I am overwhelmed with gratitude this entire week because of the faith of Poplar Spring Baptist Church that has been proclaimed through the world. Secondly, gospel faith leads to mutual encouragement. Gospel faith leads to mutual encouragement. Paul begins in verse 9 and he says to them here that I am praying for you and for God to give us some opportunity to be together. So that, verse 12, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Friends, as your pastor for 18 years, I must tell you, when I stepped into this pulpit over 18 years ago, if anybody would have asked, I would have thought what most of the people sitting in this, uh, these pews would have thought at that moment, I might be here two, maybe three years. If you go back into the history of our church, you would have to go back to our founding pastor to find someone who had been here more than 20 years. As a matter of fact, you would have to go back into the 1940s to find someone who had been here 10 years. 
And the overwhelming majority of the pastors of this church had been here two to three years. And that was the pattern for most of the churches in this area because the seminary was here. And I thought, I am that same pattern. I fit into the same paradigm. I'm, a, I'm an MDiv student. And so Jenny and I will spend two or three years here and God will move us to wherever he wants us in ministry. Little did I know that God in his good providence would convince me of long-term pastorates as such that after about two years of preaching here and then two more years of finishing things and starting to teach, I would begin to tell all of my students, you must plant your life in a community in an area where you can grow and learn and be with the people and take them through books of the Bible. And so God in his good providence has left us here. And I want to say that when you and I experience gospel faith, there is a desire for mutual encouragement in the gospel, but there's the reality of mutual encouragement in the gospel. And so Paul is saying, I desire to come to you as the Romans to have this mutual encouragement. And by the way, it wasn't just for fellowship, although that was certainly part of it. Paul had gifts that he wanted to share and the church had gifts that he wanted to reap, that he wanted to be encouraged by. It is mutual when we're in the gospel. When you and I go to sister churches, when we go to Lamino or we go to, uh, um, uh, 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 I can't even think, Turkey, to see Clay and Allison. There are times that they are encouraged and we are encouraged. If we go to Baltimore, we are encouraged and they are encouraged. We have partnerships in the gospel. Friends, I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning that gospel faith leads you to gospel partnerships. And gospel partnerships leads to the furtherance of the gospel when you are encouraged and others are encouraged. We're not only partners together in Poplar Spring Baptist Church, we partner with brothers and sisters all over the world. Gospel faith will lead us to gratitude for what God is doing. It will lead us to mutual encouragement. Beginning in verse 13, thirdly, it will lead us to gospel, gospel obligation. Gospel obligation. Paul says, I want you to know I intended to come but have been prevented so far. Why did he intend to come? Verse 14, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel. What is he talking about? Paul has a belief. He has a belief in given to us in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And friends, here is a man who is a persecutor of Christians. He was on his way, as a matter of fact, to kill Christians when God intervened in his life and brought him, claimed him for himself. And so on the road to Damascus, Paul was confronted with the gospel. He was met by Jesus Christ and he came to know Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. And Paul says then here, then I am under obligation to all. Why? Because God redeemed me. I then am under his obligation because here is his command. As you're going, make 
disciples. And there's an obligation that lays on us as believers. It has been put on us and you and I should feel the weight of it. And I want you this morning in your prayer as you read this text and feel the weight that Paul is describing to you and to me. I want you to feel the weight of the obligation of knowing the gospel. Friends, it's as if you are in a burning house and you know it's burning and you see the way out, but you don't take anybody with you on the way from where you are to the way to the door. You just think about you. And Paul says, because I know the house is burning and I know you're in it, I have an obligation to you to tell you, come with me, get out of the house. It is going to collapse. There's an obligation to knowing the gospel. Friends, feel the weight of that as Poplar Spring Baptist Church. As a family that knows the Lord, we have the weight of the gospel upon us. And it is a wonderful celebration that we know eternal life. We know forgiveness. We know freedom from the bondage of sin. And so as we look around in a dark world and it is getting darker and darker, if you will, the fire is spreading further and further. And we know that it is around us. And Paul gives us the sense of his obligation. And I want you to feel that sense this morning and know that God Gospel faith, true gospel faith in your life and in mine will lead us to this gospel obligation. I have an obligation to tell others about the king. If I know that his kingdom will last forever and he will be the king forever and he will be a good king and he has invited you to be a part of his kingdom, then I must tell others. If I were a beggar, among many who were dying of hunger and I knew where the food source was and I knew there was plenty for everybody. So there's no temptation of me just to take it for myself. There is more food than anybody could ever consume. I would be under obligation to tell those that are hungry, here's where to find food. And when I don't, it is sinful especially when my king has said, tell them where to find food. Go and bring them to me. Paul says, not only in verse 14, I'm under obligation. He says, so because of the obligation in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. Oh, friends, would you pray for the eagerness of Paul to preach the gospel to your family to your co-workers, to your neighbors. God, give us an eagerness to share the word of the gospel with others. Why? Paul knows that you and I will struggle with this. I believe he knows that he had struggled with this. I believe that Paul probably questioned a couple of times, maybe a couple of hundred times, Lord, am I really the one? But he knew that he had met with Jesus and Jesus had given him a mission. So in every one of his letters, he rehearses his own call to the gospel ministry to the Gentiles. And here he says, so I'm under obligation and I'm eager. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not about me. It's about the gospel. 
I'm not telling you to follow me. I'm telling you to come to eat bread. I'm not telling you to follow me because I can save you. I'm telling you to get out of the house because otherwise you are going to be burned up in this house. Why is he not ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's an obligation upon those who hear, but there's an obligation upon those of us who have been redeemed to share the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Friends, this morning I pray that it could be our true testimony as a church. It could be your true testimony as a follower of Christ. Lord, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it is the power of God for salvation. And I also further believe that there's nothing more important that anybody I could ever talk to could hear about than salvation. And so I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. Friends, you'll see lives changed. You'll see families healed. You'll see people who have been captured in their own sinfulness and their own chasing after idols, freed to follow Christ. Paul had a gospel obligation. Finally this morning, the gospel faith that Paul is talking about leads to righteous living. It leads to righteous living. I'll not say everything that I'd like to say here, but there's a move and has been a move in our own evangelicalism to kind of put off any righteousness that comes with following Christ. So let me be clear, as I've tried to be over my time here, holiness in your life will not, cannot save you because you cannot have enough holiness in your life. But when Jesus comes in your life, holiness will follow. So if there is no change... In your life, if there's no chasing after holiness, then there's probably no gospel faith in your life. Because the results of gospel faith is not only an eagerness to share the gospel, it's an eagerness to do God's will. And so here's what Paul says as he's talking about the gospel. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, watch this, from faith for faith, or from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Gospel faith leads us to live righteous. We are righteous because we have trusted Jesus to be our righteousness. So we can clearly say, Lord, you are my righteousness, Jesus. But if Jesus is my righteousness, it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith. I trust that to faith. I trust and believe and begin to change. I see the transformation of God in my life so that I live more and more and more and more like Jesus. So friends, let me challenge you this morning. Let the gospel faith that is ours lead us to thankfulness. Let it lead us to mutual encouragement. Let it lead us to an obligation to share the gospel. And let it lead us to righteous living. Only the gospel can do this. Only the belief and faith of followers of Christ who understand I was dead and now I live. I was blind, and now I see. I was on my way to hell, and now I'm forgiven. 
I had no hope, and now I have hope. The gospel. Don't ever leave the gospel. Stand with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word. Thank you for it. I pray now, O Lord, as we reflect on this word from Romans 1 and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be drawn to you, that our praise would be only for you, because we have no hope out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have no hope unless you would send your Son to be our Redeemer. And so our hearts are drawn to praise, to gratitude, to mutual encouragement, to sharing this word, to living as you would call us to live. We love you, O Lord. We praise you. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.